Welcome to We've Got Issues. I'm Joshua Holland. This week, we're going to talk to Paul Waldman, who writes for The Washington Post and The American Prospect, about Joe Biden's big jobs and infrastructure plan, and also kind of the rapidly changing politics that are underway in Congress right now. Uh, he also wrote about uh, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. We're going to talk about his kind of unique position now <coughs> in a 50-50 Senate. Then we're going to be joined by uh, Kylie Joy Gray. She's the executive editor of the American Independent uh, to discuss the allegations that emerged this week against a GOP rep, Matt Gates of Florida, and his bizarre and perhaps not terribly effective crisis communication strategy as a result. Uh, but first, I, I just want to briefly highlight um, some important reporting by Jane Myers in The New Yorker. Myers got her hands on a leaked conference call held by a number of conservative dark money groups affiliated with the Koch Brothers Network. This is the, oh, they call themselves libertarians. They support Republicans. Um, uh, And these guys fund all of these organizations, as you probably know it. Um, They had this conference call with an aide to Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, and it was about H.R. 1, the For the People Act, which we've discussed on the show before, an aggressive uh, set of electoral reforms, much needed. And according to Meyer, while Republicans have been blasting these reforms as an extreme power grab by Democrats publicly, she says, and I quote, behind closed doors, Republicans speak differently about the legislation. Um, They admit the lesser-known provisions in the bill that limit secret campaign spending, that is to say dark money, are overwhelmingly popular across the political spectrum. In private, they concede their own polling, that is their own internal polling, shows that no message they can devise effectively counters the argument that billionaires should be prevented from buying elections. Uh, this is something that I keep thinking about. There's, um, there is a, a tendency among, I think, Democratic partisans to not fully appreciate the degree to which their partisan interests are overlapping larger principles of self-governance, for example. You can look at this with, um, as Myers did with, with the dark money and um, the message that Billionaires should not be allowed to buy elections. But you can also look at it, I think, with um, redistricting. Uh, the, the, the idea that voters should choose their politicians and politicians should not be allowed to choose their voters by drawing districts shaped like dragons or octopi, octopuses, um, in order to win elections. This is, these are powerful arguments. They're powerful arguments that are um, you know, that, that happened to coincide with uh, Democrats' own interests, partisan interests. And this is also something that I think a lot of pundits have a hard time understanding. They think, oh, if it's, if it's in one party's interests, then it's not, um, it's not a matter of principle. It can't be. Because these parties are pursuing their own interests, their own electoral interests. So how could that be a principled stance? I saw this today, uh, this week, or I guess last week. I don't remember which pundit it was. One of the well-known pundits was saying that, you know, you have to be a fool to think that support for statehood for the District of Columbia is based in some principled belief that um, 
taxation without representation is bad. It was just a, a stunning example because I think that, I, I mean, I'm, I can only speak for myself, but <clears throat> I think that everybody, everybody on the left, the broad left, who supports D.C. statehood does so for both reasons. They do so because they believe that uh, residents of the District of Columbia should have a, should not be subordinated to the Congress. Right now, Congress runs the city of, of Washington and believes that they pay lots of taxes and should have representation. They have a, a population as big as some states. And they also want two more senators for the Democratic Party. These things are not mutually exclusive. Um, so anyway, the dark money groups are struggling to uh, create um, stuck stuck with this problem. They're trying to create the illusion of um, public opposition to these electoral reforms. Um, Heritage Action, for example, held a rally in West Virginia um, to kind of um, to pressure Joe Manchin, who we're going to talk about with Paul Waldman. To block the bill, they had to bus people in from other states. They organized pickups from uh, eight different locations in three states to get a crowd in West Virginia to say, yeah, we want billionaires to be able to buy elections. And I'm struck by the feeling that something fundamental has changed because of Trump here. You know, this is one example of many. I don't think the right's messaging is as disciplined as it used to be. And I don't think that it's very effective after what this country has gone through for the past four years. And I mean, I acknowledge that maybe I'm projecting because I am, I'm struggling with burnout and I can't take these people seriously anymore. But I have this sense that the gap between what remains of our shared reality and that presented by the conservative media and conservative positions has become so great that it is really only the um, the diehard right-wing base that believes the stuff that they're saying. And I think a great case in point um, this week was that while we were, many of us were um, facing the, the kind of trauma of the trial of Derek Chauvin, the, the uh, former Minneapolis police officer uh, who killed... Uh, George Floyd. You know, there were efforts in um, in several uh, red state legislatures to bar uh, by law the um, the teaching of critical race theory. That's their big thing. They're obsessed with critical race theory as some evil. Right. Talking about racism is evil, according to them. And I just want to play, we're going to take a quick break. I'm going to play you out with just a moment, a poignant moment. Uh, and, and you know what? I'm going to say uh, tr a trigger warning here. I, I just want you to um, listen to a moment of testimony of uh, Charles McMillan, a, a man named Charles McMillan. He was a witness to the George Floyd killing. Uh, take a listen to this and imagine thinking that the problem, that the big problem here is that we're teaching kids that America has a history of structural racism. Imagine arguing that that is the problem. 
Stay tuned. All right. Oh my God. I can't believe this. I can't believe this. I can't believe this. I can't believe this, man. Can stop right here, please? Mama, look. Mr. I'm not sure if there's water as well. Oh. If you need a break to get some water, let me know. Then we can take a break. May I approach your honor? You in. Thank you. this is difficult. Can you just explain sort of what you're feeling in this moment? I can I feel helpless. I don't have a mama either. I understand him. My mom died June 25th. Hang on just one second. Mr. What's up? Uh... Let's take a 10 minute break. We'll take a little break. Well, don't death never take a vacation 
Welcome back. I'm still Joshua Holland. I'm joined now by Paul Waldman. Paul is a contributor to the Washington Post and a senior writer for the American Prospect. Paul, welcome back to We've Got Issues. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time. I, I actually have reason to be mad at Paul because he was my first editor or my first editor for political writing uh, many years ago. And uh, maybe I would have taken a better career path if he hadn't given me a break. Maybe I'd be, <laughs> I don't know, a travel writer, a food writer, something like that. I don't know. Anyway, there's a lot going on. We have a lot of ground to cover. Let's start with um, big new infrastructure bill Democrats unveiled this week. It's a large package with a lot of investments in what most people think of when they think of infrastructure, roads and bridges and power grids and the like. Uh, but it would also direct significant resources to clean energy initiatives. It strengthens workers' right to organize. It has various job initiatives like um, a program for essential home care workers. It uh, repeals a bunch of GOP tax cuts and would increase tax enforcement. You know this kind of thing. It's a big bill. And if you're interested in more details, you can uh, you can Google it. It's called the American Jobs Plan. You can get a fact sheet. Paul, the states will soon be engaged in uh, drawing up new congressional districts. Republicans are passing a slew of new voting restrictions. I want to talk to you a little bit about some of them. And the conventional wisdom, which is probably right, is that the Dems may only have a two-year window before losing one or both chambers of Congress. Any insights into why they're, um, they seem to be moving on infrastructure before election reforms? Is this all about demonstrating yet again for the slow learners that there will um, not be uh, Republican support for anything Democrats propose in order to kind of like soften the ground to get to voting rights um, with an exception in the filibuster or something. Your thoughts? Well, Democrats can pass another reconciliation bill this year, meaning we'd only need 50 votes and they don't have to have a filibuster fight that I think that a lot of them are really not looking forward to and they don't really know how uh, it would turn out. And so uh, I think also that uh, the Biden administration and congressional Democrats really like the idea of continuing to shower very visible benefits down on the public. So the nice thing about an infrastructure bill is that, especially one of the size that they're considering, is that it's going to send its benefits to every state in the country, every district in the country. They're going to try to make it very, very visible um, so that people can see, oh, yeah, this uh, that new bridge that went up in my town or that road that got repaired, that's all because of Joe Biden and the Democrats. And so it's the kind of thing where um, uh, it's really uh, it gives help to everybody and it also reduces the intra-party conflicts that you might get in other situations. Because, you know, we're seeing a little bit of that uh, when they released the, uh, the first set of details on it. You know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweeted out that it wasn't big enough. And then you have some Democratic moderates who are demanding that if it doesn't roll back the state and local tax deduction 
um, uh, limits that were imposed in the 2017 tax cut that Republicans passed um, that they're not going to vote for it unless it rolls that back. You have especially some members of Congress from New Jersey and New York uh, that are particularly affected, their constituents by that. And so you have these very minor sort of conflicts between the moderate Democrats and the progressive Democrats. But the thing about it is that they're not really in conflict with each other. So it's really easy, especially with an enormous bill like this, that's going to be just so big and have so many hundreds and hundreds of provisions. You can give everybody what they want. You know, you can throw some of those, those tax cuts at the, at the moderates. You can put in some more spending for the progressives and everybody is going to be happy and you can, uh, you can keep the party together and get every vote and you're going to need every vote. Now, when you turn, on the other hand, to the electoral reform bill, um, that gets really complicated. Uh, first of all, you're going to need to do it um, with the uh, uh, overcoming the filibuster somehow, whether that means um, probably means reforming the filibuster. Well, it, may, it may be carving out an exemption. I feel like that yes. may be where we're moving, right? That that could be too, but in some way you're going to have to tweak it. And that's very contentious. It's going to be very tricky. You're going to have to get something that, that will really satisfy Joe Manchin. Um, you know, Joe Manchin is happy to have a new bridge in his state, but Telling him that you're gonna uh, that you're gonna put him on the Democratic side of this really really contentious fight between the two parties is going to be tricky for him, and who knows what he's going to ask. Um, and so there may be parts of that bill that certain people in the party like, and other people don't. You know, the the For the People Act, the the Democratic Electoral Reform Bill, is really ambitious and includes a lot of stuff that's going to have to get negotiated. Some of it's probably going to fall by the wayside, but it's essentially it's a much harder lift. And while the infrastructure plan isn't quite as easy as the COVID stimulus was. Um, you don't have that sense of emergency. It's still the kind of bill that, that eventually you can get people around to because it's just got something for everybody. Um, and so I think that they're, that they're looking to kind of keep the winning streak going as long as they can. And they're, um, you know, perhaps understandably wary of contentious fights that involve the filibuster that they might lose. And that's certainly true of the electoral reform bill. It is true of the electoral reform bill. At the same time, you know, we have um, a fairly, I think, entrenched conventional wisdom at this point um, that Democrats are risking their majority if they don't assure um, some integrity of the upcoming elections. If they, if they just allow um, Republicans to run hog wild with their restrictions, it's going to be um, decimating for their party in the long run. And, and of course, there is a uh, some amount of time pressure here because, um, you know, right now the census reports are being finalized. I don't know all the technical details, but there are there are data being transmitted to the states that they're going to um, be using to um, to guide re redistricting any time now. Um, I do think. Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen? Do you recall Republicans being caught like flat-footed? to the degree that they appear to have been on the COVID relief bill. I don't know why they were taken. They, they, they seem so unprepared to push back on it, but it seems like um, they were just left feebly trying to throw, you know, uh, rocks at it as, as poll after poll found uh, very, very strong support across ideological lines. Are they just, are they just really into into this winning method? <laughs> you know, 
it is remarkable. One thing we've always uh, thought about Republicans is that while they may not be all that good at governing, they're really good at opposition. They're Great really good at demonizing right? a piece of legislation, at making things difficult for a Democratic president. And you're right. They just seem like they could not muster any kind of meaningful opposition. I think that uh, part of it came from the fact that, A, that it you still had this real sense of emergency, that something had to be done. Um, B, the fact that it uh, so much of the debate was centered around those $1,400 checks, um, that made a big difference. Because the thing is, people love it when you give them money. Yeah. It's an important political principle. And even though that you could argue that wasn't nearly the most important part of that bill, uh, it became the kind of most visible symbol of it. And to go to people and say, you know, we don't think you should get that money when the Democrats are saying, do you want $1,400? Or, you know, for your family, depending on how big your family is, it might have been five, six, seven thousand $7,000. Yeah. Um, people are going to say, hell yeah, I want that money. And so I think that, that they couldn't puncture the popularity of the bill. And they tried here and there to find uh, something about it that they could, you know, kind of hold up uh, and use as a symbol. And that's something that they've always been good at, too, is, you know, you pour through the text and you pick out something and you say, this is what this is all about, this horrific thing. And I'm going to describe it in a way that makes it sound much worse than it is, you know, death panels or whatever it is. Um, and then that's going to make support just bleed away. But, you know, the, if you if you went on uh, Fox News, you could see them trying out different kind of talking points um, and none of it never, ever really seemed to work. And I think another part of it that's important is that uh, it's a symptom of a broader problem they have, which is that they just have not been able to demonize Joe Biden yes. in a way they did to Hillary Clinton. They did to Barack Obama. Um, you know, they uh, your average Republican may not like Biden. But they don't loathe him with that kind of burning fire that they did for those previous Democrats. And it does make you think that when the Democratic Party primary electorate in 2000 kind of as one said, you know, Joe Biden doesn't really excite us, but we think he's going to be the least offensive to uh, the broader electorate. And people like me were saying, you shouldn't even be thinking about that. You should just vote for the person that you prefer because that's a recipe for disaster and always has been. It turns out that the electorate was right and people like me were wrong. Yeah. Um, and it really has been hard to vilify him. Now, you can say that that, that makes makes you weep uh, <laughs> for our democratic system, right? That, the, that, that it suggests that all Democrats should do is nominate, you know, old white guys who seem like they're kind of moderate. Um, and that excludes most of the people that the party actually represents. Um, maybe that's true. Maybe it's partly true. Maybe it will no longer be true. I mean, maybe um, it's true. Still, when you're against working a, out for now. I mean, maybe it's true when you run against a crackpot reality TV star who, you know, bungled a pandemic that caused a half million deaths and uh, isn't generalizable to other elections. I appreciate you saying that you are, you got that wrong. I've been feeling like I've gotten 2020 completely wrong the, the entire time. And it's, um, it's interesting to sit back and watch and say, hey, maybe this maybe this old guy who's been around D.C. for 35 years or 45 years, whatever, has a has a pretty good handle on how to do things. Um, it is also just getting back to this this uh, difficulty Republicans seem to have had to in framing the issue correctly. There is also, I think, um, something going on with the fusion of the Republican Party with the conservative media that they are so ensconced in their 
you know, feedback loop that they are becoming bad at politics. They were starting to not really have a handle on what ordinary people are concerned with. I mean, right now, you know, we're seeing big bills pass and, you know, the the thing that is um, front and center on Fox News has been um, today it's Joe Biden's dog biting somebody. It's been um, Mr. Potato Head, right? Uh, Dr. Seuss, all these culture war nonsense that just is not resonating with people the way it should have. Let's step back a second. You wrote a piece recently about uh, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin's strategic thinking here, um, talking again about the fact that he wants to go big on infrastructure and wants to trim down the the um, electoral reform part of the Democrats' um, the Democrats' agenda. I'm not sure that we should focus as much on uh, Joe Manchin as we do given that Arizona Senator Kirsten Cinema seems also to be a real um, kind of institutionalist, a pain in the ass, um, Chris Coons, others. But while we're focusing on Manchin, what, what is your take on his legislative philosophy? And why wouldn't he have more power in a, in a Senate that worked on majority rules if he were the 50th vote? Yeah, he absolutely would. In a in a Senate where you need 60 votes for anything, he's no more relevant than anyone else. Yeah. And you've seen it on this, you know, for instance, on the uh, the COVID relief bill. When he's the 50th vote, he's got all the power. He can dictate all the terms. He can do whatever he wants. And that gives him the power to uh, to get what he wants substantively, whatever his preferences happen to be. And it's also perfect for him politically because, you know, it shows the folks back home that he's the guy who is restraining liberal Democrats. And that's absolutely at the core of his political identity, his political brand in West Virginia. Keep in mind, West Virginia is a state that Donald Trump won by 39 points. Only Wyoming was stronger for Trump than West Virginia. And uh Joe Manchin is the only Democrat who could possibly be elected there. And he does it by continually showing people that he's pretty conservative and he's not like those other Democrats. And the only way he is like other Democrats is in the sort of traditional ways that uh, made West Virginia a very Democratic state kind of back in the day. So he's a guy who can bring home the bacon. He'll get that new bridge, uh, that new school, whatever it is. He'll be pro-worker to, you know, to a certain degree, um, because, you know, there's there's a tradition there of union organizing around the, the mines. Um, and uh, but he's not going to be on board with sort of the cultural changes that other Democrats want. And he's going to be someone who always chooses to find ways that he can get attention for uh, kind of being a pain in the ass to other Democrats. Um, now, you know, the case of Kristen Sinema is a little more puzzling because she's in a state that is trending Democratic. And yes. she, it turns out, is rather more conservative than her state, whereas Manchin is, you know, even even as the most conservative Democrat, he's more liberal than his state. Um, so, uh, you know, but I think that he's, he's obviously a very canny politician. Um, and he's going to continue to find ways to sort of enhance that brand and sort of find the seams where he can be bringing home the bacon, but also being the guy who restrains other Democrats and keep showing uh, the people of West Virginia that he's the kind of person that they want there, even if they don't like the party that he represents. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's he's definitely, I mean, there's, 
it's clear, even as a distant observer, that Joe Manchin appreciates being um, catered to. And he appreciates the fact that everybody wants to know what he thinks about everything and that everybody is tiptoeing around, afraid to offend him, lest they blow up um, their agendas. Right. I mean, it, 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 that whole that whole fracas, that whole contretemps, if you will, uh, with near Tanton, that was at least in part that is um, Manchin torpedoing near Tandon's nomination, that was at least in part because he felt snubbed by the Biden White House sending um, Kamala Harris down to uh, promote the COVID relief bill in his home state without consulting with him. So it, he is he is definitely, um, you know, there is a, a personal kind of uh, ego thing in play. And, and I think that that seems pretty damn clear. And I've said this before, but I think it bears repeating. Today's conservative uh, pain in the ass Democrats are still much better than the ones Obama had to deal with in 20, 2009 and 2010. I mean, Max Baucus, remember those guys, Baucus and Lieberman and that crew? I mean, they, they were they were fine with just blowing up Democratic initiatives in a way that I don't see Joe Manchin being comfortable with. Yeah, that's one of the things about him is that in the end, he's usually going to come around. Right. You know, he wants to move the legislation. He wants to make it more to his preferences. He wants to get what he can out of it politically. But most of the time he ends up voting for it. Um, and, you know, he's uh, so he's he is. You're right. Less threatening than those people who were so problematic um, back in the uh, in the day. And, you know, eventually he'll he'll retire and then we will see no more Democrats in West Virginia for who knows how long, (laughs) but but, you know, those States that, that, you know, some of those people, you know, like Ben Nelson and Nebraska, um, those are States that haven't elected Democrats since now, some of them didn't really represent their state. Well, Lieberman obviously represents Connecticut, which is very liberal, but, but yeah, when, when, uh, the Obama, what, what Obama had to deal with was a Senate where, you know, he was just on the cusp of, uh, getting that 60th vote and being able to pass legislation despite the filibuster. So they, those conservative Democrats used every ounce of that power that they had, uh, not always in the most constructive ways. Yeah, that's right. Um, I want to shift gears here just for a moment. We only have a few more minutes. I want to talk a little bit about some developments going on down in, in Georgia, as I, I mentioned I would. Um, so today, we're recording this on Wednesday, um, Greg Bluestein from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is reporting that Delta Airlines, which had been criticized for putting out a statement praising some parts of the um, new voter restrictions passed by the Georgia legislature, came out and um, and I guess they had they had been facing some blowback from travelers. And they said that the law was unacceptable, quote, and, and, and quote, based on a lie of widespread fraud. And um, Georgia Republican leaders are reportedly extremely unhappy about this. They are, according to Bluestein, talking about ways to punish Delta, uh, since there are a number of tax measures still pending um, that they could that they could hurt, basically hurt Delta with. And. Uh, following that, there there's um, Microsoft, which is I guess 
developing some sort of, uh, I don't know what down there, they're expanding their operations there. They came out with a statement saying that they were concerned uh, about the, um, about the new law. And um, Connor Sen, a columnist for Bloomberg says that there's like a breakup between big business and the Republican party in Georgia, uh, which is very, very interesting. But the reason that I thought all of this was, was pertinent to our discussion is, you wrote a piece recently titled Republicans want you to call their policies racist. It's part of their plan. And that hooks into this, um, this kind of controversy going on in Georgia where um, companies that are traditionally that have traditionally supported Republicans are being forced to take sides. Uh, Why is it that Republicans want you to call their policies racist? It seems like they're pretty defensive about it. They are defensive. You know, they have this story that they like to tell about how, you know, they're the party of Lincoln and uh, nothing that they do has any kind of racial uh, overtones or undertones. And so when they're doing things like saying, well, maybe we should ban um, early voting on Sundays when we know black churches organize souls to the polls uh, mobilization efforts. And it's so nakedly intended to keep black people from voting. And if you ask them, they say, I have no idea what you're talking about. We never even considered that. Um, But uh, at the same time, they know that one of the kind of signal features of the Trump era Republican Party is the increased salience of whiteness um, to their voters. You know, you might remember Tanahasi Coates called Trump the first white president. Um, and what he was saying was that he's the first president who really had uh, whiteness at the center of his appeal. And a key part of this for Republicans is the idea that if you're a white, you are kind of under siege all the time. Uh, One of the ways that you're under siege is that liberals are constantly going to be calling you racist. And that's part of your victimization, your oppression. The reason you need to feel resentful is that you personally have no, uh, not a racist bone in your body, but no matter what you do, just for your opinions and for your race, you're going to be targeted by liberals and by black people. Um, uh, but especially even by white, maybe even more by white liberals. And yeah. this is kind of a, a, if you, if you tune into Fox and you listen to conservative talk radio, this is a constant, this, this idea that every time a conservative white person opens their mouth, they're attacked as racist and they're always the victims. Uh, and, um, you know, nurturing that sense of victimhood is absolutely essential to, uh, the Republican project. And so when they do something like this voter suppression law in Georgia, they know that they're going to be called, uh, th- that at least the law is going to be called racist by Democrats. And they are, you know, they're ready for that. And they're they're ready to play up the idea. You know, Lindsey Graham was quoted saying, you know, every time we try to, we try to pass a reasonable voter security law, they just call us racists. Uh, you know, he's sort of feigning outrage, which is one of his specialties. Yes. Um, and so they're, they're absolutely ready for that, and they're ready to play it up and use it as evidence that, once again, these liberal Democrats are just charging us with uh, unfairly uh, with being racist. And that's why um, conservatives are so oppressed in America today. Yeah, I can't even begin to express how exhausted I am with the conservative victimhood complex. It is completely out of control. It animates all of their communication at this point. I don't see anything else in their messaging. At this point in time, I'm not seeing any kind of cohesive you know, narrative about 
spending or taxes or foreign policy or anything else. It is cancel culture. And, you know, we are being help, help. We are being oppressed. That is the entire uh, conservative project at present. It's, it's really maddening for people who are enjoying quite a bit of privilege. It's, um, uh, but, but look, they learned, they learned something. And this is something that I, I remember one of the first pieces I ever wrote for you is about um, old school Republicans um, learning from learning tactics from the union movement. And I think that the conservative movement went through the civil rights era and decided, hey, if you can say that I'm being oppressed for my immutable characteristics, you have a powerful argument. And they adopted that themselves. And it, it strains credulity, um, but that's what we're dealing with. It's uh, And I think, you know, you, you mentioned before um, the sort of merging of the conservative media universe and the conservative political universe. And I think that this has a lot to do with it, that in some ways the yeah. tail is whacking the dog rather For than sure. than Fox and talk radio being uh, an amplifier for the for this sort of policy agenda of Republicans. Now you have this whole generation of people, you know, like Madison Cawthorn and Marjorie Taylor Greene, who don't even have any pretensions to caring about lawmaking. Yes. They're just there to own the libs. Yeah. And so increasingly the, the political party is being taken over by people who essentially exist to go on Fox News. And so the, the people within the Republican Party who do care about policy are just more and more marginalized. Nobody cares what they think. Um, you know, they're not, the, the party isn't sitting around trying to debate what its next tax plan should be because all that's important is, you know, what's the next like Dr. Seuss, Mr. Potato Head thing that we're going to be able to go on Tara Carlson and shout about. Yeah. Remember, the Republicans did not even adopt a platform in 2020. The party did not adopt a platform. They just said, we're going to go with 2016. Let's, we have a platform we wrote four years ago. We'll just go with it again. Uh, it's maddening. And, uh, you know, there is this, there is this a vicious cycle at play in that they have, um, you know, increasingly alienated, educated suburbanites and their, their base is, you know, purer and purer and jonesing for that hit of um, lib owning. And it, and it, it's, I don't know where we're, I don't know where the Republican party is going to go from here, but they are in a very bad position. And so are we as a, as a democratic Republican, because we, we have, you know, we're looking at uh, one of our major parties is, is just become completely unserious about governing. Anyway, Paul, I believe we're out of time. I've taken, God, I've taken eight minutes more than I asked you for. I want to thank you so much for taking the time with, to speak with me and for your patience. It's my pleasure. Folks, check out Paul regularly at the Washington Post and um, at the American Prospect. We're going to take a quick break and come right back. Stay tuned. Me llaman el desaparecido Cuando llega ya se ha ido Volando vengo, volando voy Deprisa, deprisa, rumbo perdido Cuando me buscan nunca estoy Cuando me encuentran yo no soy El que está enfrente porque ya Me fui corriendo más allá Me dicen el desaparecido Fantasma que nunca está Me dicen el desagradecido Pero esa no es la verdad Yo llevo en el cuerpo un dolor que no me deja respirar, llevo en el cuerpo una cosa. 
condena que siempre me echa a caminar. Me dicen el desaparecido que cuando llega ya se ha ido. Volando vengo, volando voy, deprisa, deprisa, rumbo perdido. Welcome back. I'm joined now by Kylie Joy Gray. Kylie is the executive editor of the American Independent. And for those of you who have been um, around for a while, she used to be known as uh, Angry Mouse at Daily Coast. <laughs> Kylie, have you heard about that for a long time? You know, every now and then somebody still calls me Mouse on Twitter. So I am an, I'm an original gangster. <laughs> welcome, to, welcome to We've Got Issues. It's been a long time. It has. I believe I haven't spoken with you since um, like 2016. And to tell you the truth, whenever I see you pop up on my Twitter feed, I have a little bit of PTSD because we were supposed to meet up for coffee or a drink or something in D.C. right after the 2016 election. I was supposed to be down there for a conference. Do you remember this? I, you know, it does sound vaguely familiar, although like you, I definitely have <laughs> it's dramatic. me from uh, November 2016 through basically, you know, today. Yeah, yeah. So I was supposed to be down there for a conference. And I think the unofficial theme, I mean, it wasn't explicit, but I think that the the understanding was that this conference was going to be about how progressives might push the Clinton administration to the left. (laughs) (laughs) And I told you, yeah, I'm going to be down in DC in late November. I think it was at the end of November, early December, whatever. And then after the disastrous election unfolded, I just skipped it. And um, uh, (laughs) Kylie, I'm still looking forward to, um, to a drink next time I'm in DC, which I don't know when that will be, but we should do it. And also belated congrats on the gig at the American Independent. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I've been here for a few years now. I guess I came not shortly after the election. Um, Like a lot of people, I thought, I'm not sure I can do politics anymore. I can't handle it. And then this opportunity to uh, join the American Independent came up and it was like, well, I guess I'll I'll keep doing this. (laughs) And somehow I survived along with well, most people, not everybody survived the Trump years. Yeah. I mean, uh, Glenn Greenwald and people like that have just, uh, their minds have melted down during the Trump years. They did not survive. They didn't no. come out. Anyway, let's, let's, uh, I saw that you had some thoughts about what um, some are calling Gates Gate, oh. Gates Gate, which is pathetic. I think he actually asked for that on Twitter. He said, yes, if, if I'm ever in the, in the um, eye of a scandal, I want it to be called Gates Gate as opposed to, I guess, Gates Gazi. Um, the apparent investigation into Florida congressman and um, wingnut Matt Gates, and for any listeners just returning from like a camping trip, um, <laughs> Gates came out on Tuesday with a curious story. He tweeted out, and I'll quote it: "Over the past several weeks, my family and I have been victims of an organized criminal extortion involving a former DOJ official seeking twenty-five million dollars while threatening to smear me." He I went on to say that his father has been wearing a wire and that the um, there is this uh, DOJ investigation. And he demanded that the DOJ immediately release tapes which implicate a former colleague in crime. It's just it's just this whole like weird thing. Then The New York Times came out and reported that Gates, who is 38 years old, has been the subject of an investigation that began under Trump into allegations that he provided transport for a minor. Uh, and had a some sort of intimate relationship with her, which is um, potentially a big crap. 
Kylie, Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio says Gates is innocent. Um, what more do you need? I mean, isn't that enough? Well, if there's anybody who, uh, you know, will tell the truth about what happens with sex crimes, <laughs> Congressman Jim Jordan, who uh, looked the other way while sex crimes were happening, literally right under his nose, a wrestling coach. Do you think that Gates was like, Jesus, Jim, I don't need your help on this one? Yeah, I mean, if I if I were Gates, I would not want Jim Jordan to help me. But if I were Gates, I would not be doing any of this. Starting with, and this part really amazes me because, you know, Matt Gates is ostensibly an attorney, like went to law school and so should know that when you're under investigation by the federal government for a sex crime, what you should say about it is absolutely nothing. And it's sort of saying absolutely nothing or saying, talk to my lawyer. He tweets up a storm, goes on Fox News, um, gives an interview to the Washington Examiner, which, you know, beacon of credibility there. And <laughs> he, cannot, he cannot shut his mouth. And it's just incredible the yarn that he is spinning to try to distract people from the fact that he's being investigated for an extremely serious and also disgusting crime of... Um, child sex trafficking. Yeah, and I want to say this. Um, you know, like let's say Gates is denying is denying that that he had this affair with an underage woman, and he kind of accepts like, oh yes, I did pay for some ex girlfriends, and he's saying that they were of legal age. And I, I just want to make it. It bothers me when we set a bar for lawmakers at criminality, and I, I just want to point out that. If you're a 38-year-old man and you're you know, a member of Congress and you're chasing high school girls, even if they're 18, that is not acceptable. <laughs> like, you know, let's not, let's not, I don't, I don't want to like make this difference between 17 and 18 into this bright divining line. You know what I'm saying? I mean, for him, it could be the difference between going to prison or not. Yeah. And the, and the, the justice system has to use that line. And I totally accept that. And that's right. Sure. But for us, for the public, you know, with our with when it comes to holding elected officials accountable, that should not be a line in my book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And it's it's really amazing to me that his denials of the story have been really bizarre. So when he went on Tucker Carlson's show the other night, when the story first broke, his his denial was like strangely specific. He said, I've never paid for the travel of a 17-year-old woman, which first of all, a 17-year-old is a girl, not a woman. But like, why didn't he just say, like if he was really totally innocent and there was nothing here, why wouldn't he just say, there's nothing about this story is true. I have never had any kind of romantic or sexual relationship with a minor of any kind, but to like make it specifically about the travel yes. instead of a you know really blanket denial was really strange. And then I think like subsequently he has given blanket denials, but the way that he first spoke about it 
was really odd to me. Yes, uh, to, to a lot of us. I was like, wait a second, you know. I think all of us were like parsing that first statement because it was, as you said, oddly specific. And what do you think about this whole thing of coming out and saying he was being extorted by a former Department of Justice official? Is this going to be, we'll talk in a second about what that allegation is, but is this going to be like the rights go-to defense from here on out? Will they always blame a derp state plot when they get into hot water? Is this just a permanent feature of our politics now? It, it probably is. And, you know, of course, when he first t- tweeted something about, you know, a former, uh, you know, DOJ official, I, w- I just I-, I just burst into laughter thinking, oh, my God, <laughs> the deep state is out to get me. Come on, man. Um, I, you know what? You know what? My first thought was, I wonder if it's going to be Peter Strzok. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> you know, bring out the classics. <laughs> but. You know, everything that he has said about, you know, this investigation to try to deflect from the investigation is all very weird. And I don't know if any of it is true. And maybe it is. Maybe somebody really is trying to extort him and his dad and they're working with the FBI and his dad wore a wire. And like, maybe all of that is true, but none of that is relevant to the important story here that he's being investigated for possibly being a child sex trafficker. That's the important story. And the extortion stuff, um, which is like amusing and has really weird details to it that don't really seem to add up. Uh, To me, none of that is relevant. And, you know, Gates is trying very deliberately to make the story about this extortion scheme and that he is a victim because he's a conservative, you know, wah, wah. But, but that really is not relevant. And I think that's important to remember that he's under investigation for a very serious crime. And everything else that he's saying to, to try to suggest that an extortion scheme that started a couple weeks ago is is related to an investigation of him that started last year in the Department of Justice under Attorney General Bill Barr, not exactly known for wanting to persecute, you know, or prosecute conservatives. So that doesn't really apply there. Like that's that's the case that matters. And those are the details that I think we need to know about. And, and I assume that we will find out, you know, if he's ultimately indicted. Yeah, I mean, the chronology is very important. You had this investigation that started in DOJ, and then this other story, which I have to say, I, I, I think you're absolutely right that it's not relevant, but it is it is fascinating in its weirdness, right? I mean, this there's a Cohen Brothers flick in this in this story. <laughs> Definitely. Right? There's absolutely a Cohen Brothers flick. So here's the what I've gleaned. So the the these guys who had no connection to the investigation whatsoever, whatsoever, right? Right. Somehow they learned about this. And one of them is um, this lawyer who has been um, trying to get an FBI, trying to locate an FBI agent who disappeared in Iran years ago and is believed to be dead, um, a guy named Robert Levinson, 
an American hostage, right? Um, these two guys um, came to to Matt Gates's father, Don Gates, who was a former Florida state senator, and said, "If you give us a bunch of money, we will work to get the I don't know. We will work to get Robert Levinson home." And that will somehow, and we'll give you credit for it, and then that will make your legal problems. Right. I mean, I have a lot of questions. It's so bizarre. It's like so, it's so bizarre. What the hell is going on? I don't know where to start with it, but I'm really amused by the idea of the extortionists with a heart of gold. Like, $25 million out of the gates family, but it's not for them. They're selflessly doing it to pay off a a ransom to get this hostage back. So like they're taking a ransom, but it's to pay off another ransom. So it's a totally selfless act, which I don't know. Maybe I don't know enough about the criminal world of extortion, but that seems unlikely. And also, (laughs) if you want to get a hostage released from Iran, I'm not sure that the first person who comes to mind to help make that happen is Matt Gates. We're <laughs> not particularly well connected. And even in terms of having money, even if like the, even if the ransom is $25 million, like, there are richer people in the United States who could put their hands on $25 million. Donald Trump, for example, the guy claims to be worth $10 billion. Why don't you go extort him? He's done all kinds of terrible things. Uh, so, I, I mean, the, the entire setup that these, you know, selfless, well-meaning, good Samaritan extortionists are trying to use the Gates family to get a hostage released and that this is somehow has to do with the investigation of Matt Gates because if they get the hostage released with the Gates family money that will somehow make the the uh, you know sex trafficking investigation go away i don't know how that's supposed to work and Matt Gates is not explaining how that's supposed to work because you know this guy who who's a former official like he, he he's not connected anymore. He has no power or authority. He can't just like send an email to his former colleagues and say, for reasons I can't get into because I committed a bunch of crimes, please throw out the investigation you're conducting of Matt Gates. So I'm not sure how that adds up. That's part of what makes the story difficult to follow. And then there's, yeah. you know, supposedly that Biden is in on this and would pardon Matt Gates which is also confusing to me because if Matt Gates is supposed to pay the money, it, it just it, it none of it makes any sense. Yeah, it makes, like, this this because the Department of Justice official, former Department of Justice official, is actually a white shoe lawyer, right? Who's been working for the family of this missing hostage Levinson for years and years and years, and has no information insider information that he could reveal did not threaten to reveal anything where is the threat in this it's it's all extremely goofy and so you have this cohen brothers flick and then you have a carl hyacin novel on top of that right because (laughs) this is all connected to joel greenberg this scumbag from florida Uh, kylie what do you know about joel greenberg 
Um, essentially that he's this scumbag from Florida who has already been indicted on child sex trafficking crimes. Gates. So it's not necessarily guilt by association, but it, it, it's something to look into. I mean, come on. So this guy, he is, uh, so in addition to being, uh, I, I think he was indicted. I don't think he's been convicted. He's under indictment for stalking a political opponent, human trafficking. He's been creating fake IDs. And he was a, he was a government official who used a bunch of public dollars to like set up some Bitcoin mining in his office, like real Carl Hyacin stuff. And of course, of course, he is connected to Roger Stone. <laughs> it's that had... Florida, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's fucking Florida. Yeah, we should just throw it all into the ocean. Uh, let me ask you one final question. So, uh, I guess I got two. So, this is so one thing I've been thinking is: is this the first? We have a number of freshmen in Congress right now. Um, Lauren Boebert, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Madison Cawthorn. There's a few others, right, who are explicitly, just obviously, clearly uninterested in legislating. They are there to own libs, to get on Fox. It is, um, it's this weird thing where it's not, you know, these are public officials. We're paying them, but they're really right-wing pundits. Is, is Gates the first one of these? I've been trying to think of this, and you and I were old school. We've been around for a while. Is he the first? You know, that's a really good question. And I think that he might be, uh, you know, we we did a story at the American Independent a few weeks ago about Matt Gates, um, who he was elected to Congress in 2016. And in that time, he has only introduced 24 pieces of legislation, which is actually not a lot for uh, somebody who's been in the House for, uh, you know, four years now. Um, and we looked at, you know, these 24 bills, and a lot of them are just straight up trolling. You might remember his pencil act that was basically just making fun of Adam Schiff because, you know, Donald Trump would call him pencil neck. Like, so so even the, the handful of bills that, that Matt Gates has introduced have been, you know, about owning the libs, not about wanting to pass legislation to improve the lives of Americans and specifically his constituents. Yeah. Um, so I think that, you know, he's he's definitely probably the, the king troll. Um, I, I think that there are other members of Congress who've been around longer, who've introduced really crazy legislation, but they believe in it. So yeah. like, if you think about Louis Gomer uh, from, from Texas, that guy's a total nut job. And, yes, he is. you know, certainly introduced some really crazy bills. But I think that he actually believes in them and, and believes that his legislation would serve the American people in some very strange way and, and make the country better. Matt Gates knows that some bill to make fun of Adam Schiff is not going to improve, improve anybody's life. That was just him sucking up to Donald Trump. Um, and, you know, the, the other, the freshmen you've mentioned, they're, they're doing the same sorts of things. I, I think just, uh, just on, on Thursday morning, 
um, Marjorie Taylor Greene said that she's introducing a bill to uh, strip Dr. Fauci of his entire salary until the Senate can confirm his replacement, which is hilarious because the Senate doesn't confirm his replacement. He holds a position that has nothing to do with the Senate. So it's a, this you know very ridiculous trolling bill that's also just really stupid because she couldn't bother to Google like how does the person who's job institute get the job? Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think Matt Gates might might be the original troll of this new wave of legislators, and, and there are definitely a lot of them who, like you said, they've gone to Washington to score points, build their email list, get on TV, uh, try to build their Twitter following. You know, they all want to be like AOC because she has a big following. But AOC actually has a lot of policy ideas and wants to get things done. And, you know, they all just want to be Twitter famous. Yes, that's absolutely right. And we laugh at them. But, I mean, we should acknowledge that this is a dangerous trend in American politics. And these people are. Um, they're neo-fascists. And they are going to Washington, D.C. Um, really to uh, to further this nexus between the Republican Party and the conservative media. And it's it's not good for our democracy, even if it does provide hours of entertainment for people right. like Kylie Joy Gray and myself. <laughs> Kylie, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really appreciate it. And let's get you on the show. Um, I thank you so much for sooner, having me. Sooner than four years, okay? Indeed. I would also like to thank Paul Waldman and David Edwards, our producer and engineer. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Joshua Hall, H-O-L. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, I would like to thank all of you good people for tuning in. Have a terrific week.